You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for a few Lenten reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. On today's broadcast, we're going to go back into the Catholic Hour days, uh, back in the 1940s when Bishop Sheen was on the radio as Monsignor Sheen. And so we're going to share three reflections from uh, his Lenten series back in 1944. And uh, these uh, talks will be very powerful. And so I would, of course, uh, ask you to uh, just pay attention because he speaks to all of us. He's going to be talking to sinners, to the selfish. Uh, it's going to be great. And so let's begin our hour with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please enjoy this reflection now from the Right Reverend Monsignor Sheen uh, from 1944, and this talk is entitled, A Word to Humanist. Please enjoy. Friends, May I renew the appeal for an hour a day to be spent in prayer by every Jew, Protestant, and Catholic. Catholics should attend Mass daily as part of their holy hour, remembering always that the world is under the chastisement of God. And we must do penance and return to God before we will have peace. And in an effort to break down anti-Semitism and anti-Christianity in this country, we have written a little booklet entitled Friends, which we will send you free for the asking. It is only by loving God that we will ever learn to love one another. There are millions of souls in this great country of ours who have no religion whatsoever. Their attitudes vary from a very earnest yearning for religion to an intense hatred of it. 
it is quite possible that they all could be reduced to seven distinct categories. Our Lord spoke seven times from the cross. These are called his seven last words. But those who were on Calvary's hill that afternoon addressed seven words to him, thus revealing the seven different impacts the cross makes on souls. The first of the seven possible attitudes toward the cross is that of humanism. The term humanist is here understood in its modern philosophical sense and embraces all those who want a religion without a cross. The humanists, for example, believe that man is naturally good, that progress is inevitable through science, and that human reason, by its own effort, is able to restore peace to the world. The humanists regard all suggestions about faith and grace and prayer and the supernatural order as impractical and unnecessary. They want an education of self-expression, a God without justice, a morality without religion, a Christ without his cross, a Christianity without sacrifice, and a kingdom of God without redemption. These humanists of our day had their prototypes on Calvary on Good Friday. They were those whom sacred scripture calls the passers-by. A significant term indeed. For it suggests those who never remain long enough with religion to know anything about it. Those who think themselves wise because they have a passing acquaintance with our Lord. It was they who speak the first word to the cross. And they said, Vah, thou that destroyest the temple of God, and in three days dost rebuild it, save thy own self. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. He is no sooner on the cross then they ask him to come down. The world is always saying that. Come down from your belief in divinity. Come down from your teaching in hell. Come down from your belief that what God hath joined together no man can put asunder. Come down from your belief that Christ will preserve the church even to the consummation of the world. Come down from your belief in infallibility. Come down and we will believe. And all the while that mob jeers, there comes from the cross the answer, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They said, if thou be the Son of God, humanists are certain only of humanity, not of divinity. But he spoke of God, Father, they said, come down. They judged power by deliverance from pain. He said, forgive. He judged power by deliverance from sin. They boasted of their knowledge and superior wisdom, and he reminded them that all their wisdom was ignorance. 
they know not what they do. Religion, the humanist insists, must be a religion of love. And who speaks more of brotherhood than humanists? But they want a love without the cross. And the word of our blessed Lord seems to imply that that is impossible. For how shall love forgive without first satisfying justice? Shall love mean to let the sinner go on sinning? Or shall it mean to make the sinner sinless? A religion without a cross. That is the essence of humanism. Now what we want to do here is not to prove that the humanists are wrong, but we want to try to make them understand the meaning of the cross and how very much it symbolizes the love of God. And so we speak directly to the humanists. You have humanized God, and thus you have dehumanized man. By denying man can be supernatural, you have not left him even natural. For every man wants to be more than he is. You have tried to make all men brothers, but you have forgotten that men cannot be brothers unless they have a common father. And God cannot be a father unless he has a son to whom we all are patterned as brothers. Swine are content. But you humanists are not content with humanity. For now, like monsters of the deep, man preys on man. In godless hands, man has withered like a rose without roots. You make a republic of kings, but you have no one to crown or anoint them. The tragedy of your humanism is believing that dirty things are clean, that the cruel are kind, and hence there's no need for a cross. Come down, and we will believe. To you, all men are good. There are halos even in hell. And so on Calvary's hill you stand and ask in seeming wisdom for a Christ without a cross while he answers you, forgive. Do you not know that to have a world without a cross is in itself a cross? Do you know a mother worthy of the name would not take the pain of her tender babe as her very own because she loves that babe? Why then should not supreme love, in the face of evil, seek to take the penalty which sin deserves, that the evil might be innocent again? Then why do you say, come down and we will believe? If he came down, in whom would you believe? Why are we at war? If it is not because sin is in some human blood... And only in the shedding of just blood can there be redemption and remission of sin. Why not see then that great evils can be conquered only by the shedding of the blood of the God-made man upon the cross? Why then do you say, come down and we will believe? For if he came down, where would love be? Greater love than this no man hath. 
that a man lay down his life for his friends. Do you believe that you, who out of love for neighbor can sacrifice yourself, can do that which God cannot do? Truly you know not what you do. Have you humanists ever seen love stand up against brute force and go down simply because it would not cease to love? Love without power is destroyed by evil. But love armed with power will die rather than surrender love. And that is our Lord on the cross. God in becoming man must suffer too as man suffers. Else how could love be love if it costs not the lover? Did not your Gaethy say, If I were God, this world of sin would break my heart. Well, that is just what it did to him. It broke his heart. Why then, if your love for man is sometimes met by sneer and scorn, do you say to a Christ whose God-love was crucified, come down and we will believe? In what can you believe if love must love without a cross and sacrifice? The cross is eternal. It cannot be dug up. It cannot be taken down. It is the core of creation. It is the root of all of our lesser calvaries, of all the sacrifices of all our soldiers in this war. It is God who gives the cross. And it is the cross that gives us God. You want the cross, but you do not want the crucifix. The cross you can wear as a charm, but the crucifix you cannot. Somehow or other, when you look at it, you feel involved. A statue of Buddha does not stir you. But just put a crucifix on your desk for three days and see what it does to you. Remember the days of the French Revolution when a mob swept into the Tuileries, through room after room it went destroying, then through a closed door and lo and behold a chapel. Above the tabernacle hung the crucifix. A hush fell upon the enraged mob and someone cried, hats off! Every head was bowed, then every knee was bent. Indifference was impossible. Then a humanist took the crucifix down, hung it in an adjoining house, and the wild tide of destruction rolled on. They had taken Christ down from his cross. Now they could proceed. Religion was comfortable. No wonder men want Christ to come down. They want a cross, but not a crucifix. A crucifix perils your soul. You stand unmoved before the Sphinx. But the Christ on his cross, in some way, gets into your heart and into your soul, and you acknowledge your guilt. Suppose that our Lord did come down from the cross as you bad then he would have forced you to have done his will. Where then would be your freedom? One day he will come without his cross, bearing it rather than being born upon it, 
For that will be to judge and to strike and not to heal as now. For then the day of healing will be past. The human never long remains the humanist. For either beast or angel man becomes. But not just man. If you came from the beast, you cannot leave the beast behind. But if you came from God, then you can leave humanity behind and be a child of God. This is true humanism, where man finds his center in his source. Before it is too late, then, my dear humanist, desist your plea. Come down and we will believe. Rather listen to that word he answered you. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Forgiveness is not cheap. If he offered forgiveness to you without a cross, you would not take it. But from a nail-pierced hand, how can you refuse? That cross is the price that God had to pay to buy you from your sins. Without it, there is neither sin nor God. As you rise in the scale of nobility, do you not choose pain and trouble and sacrifice for others rather than comfort and ease? Then why do you not choose him who did just those very things for you? May you, after having listened to the first word of our Lord from the cross, be captured by his love. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for a few Lenten reflections from Archbishop Sheen. Uh, these reflections in the 40s were given when he was known as the Right Reverend Monsignor Sheen. Uh, but of course, he still has that signature wit and wisdom that we've come to know and love. And so we're going to have a second reflection now from, again, the 1940s. Again, this is his second word to the cross, and it's entitled, A Word to Sinners. Please enjoy. Friends, there are two ways of coming to God. Through their preservation of innocence and through the loss of it. Some have come to God because they were good, like Mary, who was full of grace, like Joseph, the just man, like Nathaniel, in whom there was no guile, or like John the Baptist, the greatest man ever born of woman. But others have come to God who were bad, like the young man of the Gerasenes, possessed of devils, like Magdalene, out of whose corrupt soul the Lord cast seven devils, and like the thief at the right, who spoke the second word to the cross. The world loves the mediocre. The world hates the very good and the very bad. The good are a reproach to the mediocre, and the evil are a disturbance. That is why Christ was crucified with thieves. 
This is his true position. Jesus among the worthless ones. During his life, he was accused of eating and drinking with sinners, and now they accuse him of dying with them. Here is the supreme instance of the right man in the right place. Christ among the bandits. The redeemer in the midst of the unredeemed. The physician among the lepers. For God does not work through culture but through grace. Thus does God show that we become great not because of what we are but because of what he gives. God in his infinite wisdom has reached deep into the lower layers of humanity and picked out of its dregs two worthless derelicts and he used one of them as the escort of his eternal son. At the beginning of the crucifixion, both thieves cursed and blasphemed the Savior. But suddenly the soul of one of them, the thief at the right, lighted by fires from that central cross, turned to a king who was being mocked and asked to be one of his subjects. For he said, Lord, remember me when thou shalt come into thy kingdom. Lord. He called him Lord. A real king is so easy to approach. Remember me. There was a touch of humor in asking God to remember. God had remembered him before he was born. That is why he was immortal. God had been following his souls down the corridor of time, and now this pursued us, the pursuer, to remember. When thou shalt come into thy kingdom. How did the thief know he had a kingdom? Maybe the crown of thorns spoke of a diadem, the crucifixion of a coronation, the nails of a scepter, and the blood of royal purple. We can never judge people by the way they are dressed. No prayer to God is ever unanswered. And so from the central cross there flashed back, This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. This day Evil has its hour, but God has his day. Thou, he calleth his sheep by name. This was the foundation of Christian democracy, the value of a person. The soul of an outcast is of such value that the eternal word addresses him in the second person singular, thou shalt be with me in paradise. I wonder why he said in paradise. To be with him is paradise. The mob on Calvary asked him to come down from the cross and the thief asked to be taken up. The masses would have believed if he preached a religion without a cross but the thief found his faith by hanging on a cross. 
This is the supreme instance of one bringing good out of evil. It is doubtful if the thief would have found goodness otherwise. Why is it that this thief found salvation? It can only be because the capacity for conversion is greater in the really wicked than in the self-satisfied and complacent. The very emptiness of souls of the sinners is in itself an occasion for receiving the compassion of God. Self-disgust is the beginning of conversion, for it marks the death of pride. And may it not be that the conversion of the good thief is the key to the conversion of the modern world. Men will return to God in this world, not just because they are good, but because they recognize that they are evil. In this modern day, men will come to God through evil rather than through goodness. Or shall we say, they will come to God through the devil. Countless are the instances mentioned in the gospel of those who came to God after Satan was driven out of their souls. The French revolutionist Sorel predicted that the basic problem of the 20th century would be the problem of evil. And everyone knows this is the century of evil and insanity. The 19th century foreshadowed this in one of its most outstanding writers, Dostoevsky, the Russian, who believed that the world would be saved after it had passed from Antichrist to Christ. An English philosopher in our own day makes this typical modern approach of finding God in the very midst of evil. None of the explanations given by his contemporaries concerning evil are satisfactory to him. The socialist explanation of evil in terms of economic inequality and injustice he rejects. Very aptly he says, for if poverty is the root of all evil, then money must be the source of all virtue. And then he rejects the psychological explanation of evil which attributes evil to suppressed desires and thwarted sex libidos, all of which, according to the modern mind, could be abolished by popularizing aesthetics and by extending the blessings of the machine and the ballot. And he asks himself, was no rich man ever cruel? Was no unrepressed man ever tyrannical? Was no self-expressive child selfish? Evil is not merely a byproduct of unfavorable circumstances. It is so widespread and so deep-seated that one can only conclude that that which religion has taught is true, namely that evil is endemic in the heart of man. And that it is. It is in our blood. It flows through our veins. It gives life to the brain when it thinks evil. It energizes the will when it kills. It fires the muscles when it drops bombs. And it persecutes the prayerful. In the face of that evil which is endemic in the human heart, this truth finally emerges. To overcome evil, we must begin to recognize that it is evil. And there's no hope for the world until we do recognize sin is sin. There's hope for those who are deaf and who want to hear.
for the lame who want to walk. There is hope for the diseased who acknowledge the need of a physician. And there is hope for a sinner who recognizes the need of a redeemer. The thief at the right conquered evil just that way. By admitting his emptiness of soul, he called upon God to save him. There is only one thing in the world that is worse than sin. And that is denying that we are sinners. And that is the tragedy of the world in which we live. It denies sin. Never before in the history of the world was there so much evil. And never before so little consciousness of it. We blame everyone except ourselves. Talk to a modern man about recognizing and reconciling his soul with God, and this is what he will say to you. What have I ever done to him? Why leave him alone? Why shouldn't he let me alone? Why does the modern man say this? Well, for the very same reason that a healthy man might say to a surgeon who wished to operate on him, there's nothing wrong with me. Leave me alone. In like manner, if you are your own law, if you set your own standards, if you are your own God, then it is nonsense to ask to be reconciled to another God. As a man gets more wicked, he understands his wickedness less and less. Just as when a man's fever climbs to a point of deliriousness, he understands his sickness less and less. He may even think himself so healthy that he wants to go to work. The more we are in sin, the less we know sin. As the sounder we are asleep, the less we know we are asleep. We have to wake up before we know we were asleep. A moderately bad man knows he is not good. A very bad man thinks he's good. When, therefore, you reach a point, when you cease calling yourself idiotic, and do not mean it, and begin to call yourself a rotter, and really mean it, you are on the pathway of the good bandit that leads to conversion. The perception of guilt is the condition of conversion, as the perception of disease is the condition of remedy. And so long as we think we are good, we will never, never find God. If you think you know it all, how can God teach you? There's a peculiar thing about pride. We will admit we are ill-tempered or that we are intemperate. But have you ever in your life known anyone who admitted that he was proud and conceited? We all deny that we are proud. We condemn pride so very vociferously in others that we deny we've ever been guilty of it ourselves. As a matter of fact, the more conceited we are, the more we hate conceit in others. The more we say, I'm not conceited, the more we prove that we are conceited. 
Our pride, therefore, makes us look down on people so that we can never look up to God. And in order to look up to God, we needs must do two things. First, we must humble ourselves. And that is why Sunday after Sunday, we ask every Jew and Protestant and Catholic in our radio audience to set aside an hour a day for prayer and contemplation. I wonder how many of you are doing it. Catholics every morning should attend Mass and extend that morning Mass a half an hour and complete the Holy Hour. And then the second thing that we must do is we must live in humble service of our fellow men. And to cultivate that, we have published this little book entitled Friends, the purpose of which is to induce us to be friends with God and friends with ourselves, friends with Catholics, friends with Jews, and friends with Protestants. The very moment we stop strutting and posing and begin to see ourselves as we really are, then in our humility we shall be exalted. Let us therefore examine our conscience. Ask ourselves not how much we know, but how much we do not know. Not how good we are, but how bad we are. Let us judge ourselves not by the knowledge we possess, but by our consciences. Not by our education, but by our habits. Not by our politeness, but by our hearts. As soon as we feel a great void in our souls, and realize that because of our sinning we are no longer our own, and acknowledge that we are still thirsty at the border of a well, and admit that we have played the fool, and that our follies of the years mount up in their dark arrears. Then, out of a dark and swampy soul, we cry out with the thief, as all Catholics do when they go to confession, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I am a sinner. Such is the beginning of salvation. And in that beginning, we say to our Lord, There are two things, dear Lord, which are not in your treasury, rich as you are. My sins and my sorrow. Make them thine, as thou didst make the sins and the sorrow of the thief thine. The thief died a thief. For he stole paradise. And if we win paradise, it will be because we are thieves too. For we will never deserve what we got, the God of everlasting love. And so, as a sinner to sinners, I say, may God have mercy on our souls. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life 
is worth living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this Lenten season. And I'm sure you've been enjoying these reflections back from the Catholic Hour in the year 1944. And it was funny how uh, anyone that knows Bishop Sheen well, he would have this uh, tradition of giving his reflections on the Catholic Hour, and then in the same year he'd come out with a book. And so these reflections that you're listening to are actually in the book from 1944 entitled Seven Words to the Cross. And uh, so it is a very good read if you ever want to pick up a good book on those who challenge the cross. And so I want to invite you now to listen to the third reflection we've chosen today. And this one's entitled A Word to the Selfish. Please enjoy. Friends. The most common sin in the world is selfishness. Selfishness assumes that the goal of living is the satisfaction of one's own ego. Concentrating on self, the selfish hate themselves. Doing always what they like, they hate what they do. Having their own way, they block the way and lose the way. Unable to get on with themselves, they never get on with anyone else. When the selfish become learned, they define religion in the language of a contemporary philosopher as what a man does with his own solitariness. When the selfish are in distress, they ask, why should God do this to me? And when the selfish sin, they say, does my sin do to anyone else? The selfish people of today were on Calvary's hill in their representative, who was the thief on the left. He had heard the blasphemy and the pride of his companion thief broken, when out of a consciousness of sin he called on the Lord of mercy. But that experience left the thief on the left untouched. One can be so close to God physically and yet miss him spiritually. And turning to the Lord on the central cross, that wicked thief on the left in the supreme expression of selfishness cried out with bitterness of soul, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. He was the first Marxist. Long before Marx, he was saying, religion is the opium of the people. To him, a religion that thinks only of souls when men are dying, which bids them look to God at the moment when courts are inflicting injustice, which talks about pie in the sky, when stomachs are empty and bodies racked with pain, which talks about forgiveness when the social outcasts, two thieves and a despised proletariat, a village carpenter, are dying on a scaffold. That kind of religion is a religion that is the opium of the people. If there was to be salvation for the thief on the left, it was not to be spiritual or moral, but physical. That is why he said, save thyself and us. 
Save what? Our souls? No. Man has no soul. Our bodies. What good is religion if it cannot stop pain? Step down from a cross, rescue a class, or pamper selfish interests. Christianity is either a social gospel or it is a drug. Such was the message of that thief. Our Lord did not answer him directly, but he did answer him rather indirectly. When looking down from the cross, he addressed himself to the two most beloved creatures on earth, Mary, his mother, and John, his disciple. But he did not address them as Mary and as John. If he had called them by their names, they would have remained what they were, representatives of a certain class. If he had said mother, she would have been his mother and no one else's. And if he said John, he would have been the son of Zebedee and the son of no one else. So he said, when he spoke to Mary, woman, and he called John, son. Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. He was saying that religion is not what a man does with his own solitariness, but rather what he does with his relationships. He called Mary and John into a relationship as wide as the world. In a certain sense, he declassified them. She was no longer to be his mother alone. As he was the new Adam, she was to be the new Eve. He had told her about a year before that there were other ties than those of flesh and blood, namely the spiritual bond of those who do the will of God. And to herald this new relationship as the mother of Christians, he calls her woman. It was high summons to universal motherhood. And John, who up to this point is the son of Zebedee, is not called John, for that would have been to keep the ties of blood. He is addressed as son. Son, behold thy mother. Jesus was the firstborn of Mary's flesh, but John was the firstborn of her spirit at the foot of the cross. And perhaps Peter the second, and maybe Andrew the third, and James the fourth, and we, the millionth and the millionth born. Our Lord was setting up a new family, a new social relationship. Say, John, take care of my mother. Nor did he say, Mary, look after John as you would me. No, having established a new relationship between Mary and John, namely that of motherhood and sonship, the duties to one another flowed quite naturally. The essence of religion is fellowship, based on our relationship to God and our relationship to fellow man. And that is why, as you look back on the life of our blessed Lord, that he said nothing about slavery. 
because he knew that slavery would never be eradicated until men saw themselves related one to another on the basis of equality as children of God. Our Lord never gave a discourse on the need of child clinics. He was the Son of God first proclaimed the value of a child to a pagan world by becoming a child. He said nothing about the necessity of democracy, but he laid the foundations for it when he told Pilate, for example, what we over 1,700 years later wrote in the Declaration of Independence, that all rights and all liberties come from God. Our Lord never said anything about the rights of labor, but he dignified labor as a vocation by working as a carpenter, he who carpentered the universe. He said nothing about treating servants decently, but he girded himself with a towel and washed the feet of his own apostles, saying, and whomsoever will be first among you shall be the servant of all. He said nothing about the equal distribution of economic good, but he first made men brothers under the fatherhood of God, and from that distribution would follow. The equality of possessions does not make men brothers. But being brothers makes for economic equality. Communism of things will never work until we start with a communism of personal relationships. Individual selfishness cannot be corrected by class selfishness. And until we learn that lesson, we will never have a solution of our economic ills. Never, therefore, say, religion is a purely personal matter, because you can no more have a personal religion than you can have a personal son or a personal astronomy or an individual mathematics. If your personal religion unites you to God, and my personal religion unites me to God, then there is there not a common relationship between us and the common Father? That is, we do not allow ourselves to be determined by something outside ourselves. Does each one do whatever he pleases? Call out his own selections? Take the baton from the conductor or whistle his own tune? Then why, when the subject is religion, where the conductor is God, should we insist on our own individual ideas? Or say religion is what I think about God. Rather, religion is what God wants it to be. Hence, I must seek his will, not mine. I must discover his truth, not elaborate my opinion. Nor is it true to say, the way that I conduct my life is nobody's business but my own. Or, my sin harms no one else. Could you throw a stone into the sea without causing ripples, which would affect even the most distant shore?
A scientist tells us that even the rattle of a child which is dropped from the cradle affects in some way even the most distant star. How then do we think that our moral actions can be devoid of social repercussions? Morality is essentially a relationship, and a relationship of threefold character. A relationship between myself and my conscience, between myself and my neighbor, and between myself and my God. And you cannot think of a single wrong deed in the world which does not disturb all these relationships, even the most secret sins. Take, for example, a strong hatred, even though it does not express itself in violence. First, it disturbs your relationship to yourself, physically by perhaps upsetting your stomach, mentally by creating a complex or a tension between your ideal and what you actually are, and morally by a remorse of conscience. And secondly, your hatred disturbs your relationship to your neighbor by diminishing the content of love in the world. And if enough individuals did exactly what you did, we would have a war. And thirdly, it disturbs your God. For if you are a motor made by God, which runs best on the fuel of divine love which God supplies, it follows that you upset both yourself and your happy relationship to him by trying to run your motor on the fuel of hate. All quarrels, disagreements, wars, strifes, and dissensions begin with a false declaration of independence. Independence from God and independence from fellow man. That is, incidentally, the reason why the Jews on the one hand and the Christians on the other are on the wrong track when they attempt to break down intolerance by protests within their own group or class. The Jews will never, never anti-Semitism so long as they protest against intolerance only within their ranks or within their press and completely ignore the intolerance shown to Christians. And identically the same thing is true of Christians. Until they both protest out of a common relationship, until the Jew defends the Christian and the Christian the Jew, we will never have peace. And in order to bring about this relationship and establish friends with God and with neighbor, with self, with Jew and Christian, we have published this little book, Friends. It will be out this week. Write for it. It is yours for the asking. One of the reasons, I suppose, why there's a great decline of belief in the divinity of our Lord outside of the church is because the proper understanding of the relationship existing between our Lord and his mother has been destroyed. Very few today ever think of our blessed mother. Would you, as a son, 
have much regard for anyone who said he liked you, but who refused to speak to your mother? Well, do you think our Lord can feel any differently, particularly since he gave his mother to us on the cross? Our Lord came to us through Mary, and it will be through Mary that the world will find our Lord again. May the Jews and the Catholics and the Protestants set aside then an hour a week. Pray to God. And may the Catholics every morning assist at Mass and prolong the Mass for half an hour and complete the hour. I'm very happy to say that many are doing it. May it increase. And may you be devoted to our Blessed Mother. We are her children. Our Lord gave us to her on the cross. And as children, we never grow up. And may we say to her, and the language and the beautiful language of Mary Dixon Thayer, lovely lady dressed in blue, Teach me how to pray. God was just your little boy. Tell me what to say. And did you lift him up? Sometimes. Gently on your knee. Did you do him the way mother does to me? Did you ever hold his hand at night? Did you ever try telling him stories of the world? And, oh, did he cry? Do you think he cares if I tell him things? Just just little things that happen. And do angels' wings make a noise? Can he hear me if I speak low? Does he understand me now? Tell me, for you... Lovely lady dressed in blue, teach me how to pray. God was your little boy, and you know the way. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living. Hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you once again for joining me for this season of Lent and these powerful reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. I'd invite you to join me next week as we continue this series of talks uh, on the seven last words that our good Lord spoke from the cross on Calvary. And so until that time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace.